All right, happy Tuesday, everyone, and welcome back to another Learning Tech Talks, where we continue exploring the intersection of business, technology, and the human experience. And today, we've got a wide variety of topics. We're going to talk about everything from simulation to AI to the intersection of AI and immersive tech and experiential learning. It's going to be a fun one. They're <laughs> always fun, as anybody who listens to this knows. But this one will be exceptionally fun. And to help me navigate that conversation, I'm joined by Mike Vaughn, who is the CEO of the Regis Company. So thanks so much, Mike. And you're just you're just a hop skip south of me, aren't you? You're in Chicago, right? Uh, actually, Golden, Colorado. Yeah, in oh, the mountains. Yeah, okay. Golden, Colorado. All right. For some reason, I thought, why did I think you were in Chicago? Did you? Were you? I uh, know. Uh, actually, our COO, he's a Chicago person, but uh, now that's um, why. Yep, I uh, grew up in. Uh, Colorado. Okay. What part? Uh, it's an area in Golden. So it's uh, west of Denver and it's right okay. in the mountains. Yeah. So we're surrounded okay. by um, beautiful trees everywhere. And did you grow up there? I did. Yeah. Actually, I grew you up did. in uh, the town that we are actually headquartered in right now, uh, Golden. And it's got this beautiful oh, cool. Audi sign. It's a surreal town now. But when I was growing up, there was only Two greasy spoon restaurants, but now it's it is the place to be now. So uh, it's the the yeah. place to be. So mm -hmm. hey, sticking it out was totally worth it. it. it I, I did stick it out. That's right. I well, I've got a special place for Colorado. I was born in Loveland, actually oh, birthed technically, okay. and then grew up in in Loveland. And uh, oh, yeah, really it's gorgeous out there. Yeah, yeah. If I didn't live in the Midwest. Colorado is where I would probably want to go back to. So maybe someday, maybe yeah, someday yeah. we'll see. All right. So for folks who may not be as familiar with you and the Regis company, a little bit of background, though, because for those who may not know, well, actually, let's start with the Regis company. And when people say, so you lead the Regis company, what do they do? How mm -hmm. do you describe it? Because you've been on a bit of a transformation journey with the Regis company, too. Yeah, we really have. Um, maybe a little bit of context. So that'll help actually set up why we did such a major pivot. Um, so my my background, starting off, I was uh, an actual AI developer. So I was actually programming neural nets back in the early 90s uh, and a lot of fun, but it was all research oriented in that. Lead. Wait, are you suggesting that AI didn't start in 2021? I, you know, it didn't. Isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea. You would think reading everything that like this thing just came out of nowhere knew, a couple of years it ago. It just popped up all of a sudden. Yeah. No, it's it's it has been around for a long time, and there were those of us that were using uh, C++ back in the time, and you know, writing uh, this object uh, code and trying to train neural networks and uh, trying to figure out how to make them a little bit smarter. And we we did some fun stuff. We taught a, a dot matrix printer how to balance a pole and uh, some kind of fun stuff like that, uh, but nothing practical. Uh, the glory days. The glory days. That's right. <laughs> But then uh, I realized I wasn't going to have much of a, a future then because it just that wasn't mature enough yet. And, you know, and it really had to go down the research route. Uh, so I, I went into adult learning and went down the cognitive neuroscience route and really studied kind of how the brain works. And obviously there's great overlap with uh, AI and neural nets. And uh, that led me into the learning space and really got into e-learning, uh, started a learning management company in 95 and then. Uh, sold that and started a learning content management company in 98 and then started this one. And I wanted to do something different. I wanted to move beyond knowledge level learning and to get into experiential learning. And that's what I ask you a question before I told you I was oh, going to sure. interrupt you. Yeah, please. So 
you got into the AI space, the technical space. And the reason I ask is I had a similar journey, but I'm always curious as to the why, why you made the shift from AI and tech to learning. Because again, I've got my reasons, but I'm curious what made you go, you know what, this is interesting, but actually I want to go into human learning because really before you were teaching machines in some regards, and then you moved to it, it teaching. Was. I think, yeah, it's just that, that that's exactly it. You know, if you think about the neural nets, the whole framework is really modeled after the neural networks in our brains, you know, about yeah. the, the whole wiring and, and then being able to reinforce. And there's this whole concept of reinforcement in AI. Yep. And, um, and so I think it was just a natural progression. I just knew that I didn't want to be in academia uh, my life, uh, whole life. And I think that was the only route at the time uh, for AI. And I really wanted to get into something practical. And uh, once I started studying kind of the neuroscience, I just fell in love with adult learning. I got so intrigued about one area of learning called mental models. And the whole idea of a mental model is that's how we approach decisions, how we think about the world, how we approach each other. And I was like, gosh, is there any way to learn how to surface people's flawed mental models, dated mental models, and give them an opportunity to develop new, you know, more yeah. productive mental models. And that's what got me excited about adult learning is I, I've never lost that passion around mental models. It's still, okay. core, it's now mindsets is maybe a more approachable word, but um, okay. yeah, that's, that's what got me down that path. No, it's, it's just interesting hearing that because similarly, different paths, but I was, you know, coding and doing, I wasn't quite in the AI space at the time. I was still too young to be playing with that stuff, but I actually became more fascinated. I became more fascinated with people and going like, I'm actually more curious how this technology is affecting people and the way people change and develop. It just, again, was more the creative application of it that I went, uh, eh, the technical route is interesting to me and I want to know how it works and how it's developing, but more from the sidelines. And I really want to be more involved on the people side of it. So mm, it's just interesting hearing people who make developer. that jump. Yeah. That, oh, we got to talk about that development uh, yeah. part of your life. That's excellent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so you, you got into that, you were yeah. doing kind of more, it sounds like more the traditional knowledge-based learning when That's you right. first got into it, which I think is the starting place for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You get into it and you're like, okay, well, learning, we all went to school. That's kind of what we're familiar with is the education side of it, but you wanted to go beyond that. Yeah. And actually, as, as you just said that, you kind of remind me of something because in 93, uh, that's when, um, you know, the web browser really was released yep. and then started getting traction. Oh, Netscape Navigator. Navigator. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what got me into it though, because I got really excited about the web browser and it's almost reminds me of kind of, that's what's happening now is that kind of, um, power, you know, that was then all of a sudden uh, democratized, made available to everyone. And then that allowed us to really think about learning very differently. Because if you remember, a lot of it was on a CD-ROM or in tapes and, you know, or slides. That's and how you got the internet. Remember that? Right. You'd like go to the gas. You're like, oh, hey, another free yeah. CD. I'll get 50 free hours. There you go. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, then, then uh, what I really wanted to do is I got to a point where I said, I want to really get into that mental models and okay. put people in a situation where they become aware of how their own bias is influencing their thinking, where they get a chance to practice. They get a okay. chance to you know, see the impacts of their decisions. And that led me into simulations uh, because at the time that was the only 
uh, learning type of modality that really challenged people to think about their thinking. And that's really what was underlying kind of the whole mental model um, uh, behavioral change. So that's yeah. what led me down that path. Okay. Interesting. I, there are so many things we won't, we won't, cause there's, we have way too much to talk to, but there, we maybe need to have a follow-up conversation to this. Cause what you're describing very much resonates even with my own journey in terms of how I've thought about it and some of the things I've done. Okay. So then, so you make this pivot and you start the Regis company, which where did that begin? Obviously you said, I want to go beyond kind of the knowledge acquisition type of a thing and, and specialize more in the experiential space, but how did that get its start? Yeah, so we started uh, researching all the different companies that were building simulations and really said, okay, if we're going to figure this out, we got to marry technology with a kind of the neuroscience and design and be able to take that into organizations. And that's what we did. So we, the way I would describe the early days of Regis is that we were a high-end boutique simulation firm that would go in okay. and build a custom simulation around any aspect of the business, whether you're trying to learn okay. leadership development, project management, take a product to market, we built a sim for it. Um, and when you say sim, because that means a lot of things to a mm -hmm. lot of different people. And let's talk early days Regis company, when you would go in and actually deconstruct the experience and go, okay, we need to actually build a simulation. What were you building for people? Yeah, maybe I'll start saying what it's, that it's, well, it's, it's not. It's not a just a role play. <laughs> or a yeah. study. It, what, when I'm using the word simulation, the idea is to, it, it would be through the computer, uh, through the web browser, okay. and where you're being placed into a situation, and each of these situations, you have to make a decision. And okay. each of your decisions are captured and analyzed that then uh, changes the situation that you're moving into. And then all of this then uh, is used to give you feedback. You know, this is the impact that your decisions have. This might be a blind spot that you have. Uh, this might be one of the trade-offs you didn't consider. This might impact you in your growth as becoming a leader. So it's very practice-oriented and very data-intensive. And that's really what I mean by a simulation. So it goes way beyond a, a case study. It goes way beyond a role play. And it really is immersing somebody into different situations. Because that, and I think that's really helpful because again, when I talk to people, when they hear simulation, it means very different things, especially depending on your experience in the space and just what you've done. Because to your point, I think sometimes when I talk to people and they say, yeah, we do simulations and then you dig into it, it is a role, which again, I don't, I'm not discouraging people from doing role plays and no. stuff, yeah. but there's a big difference between doing some role play and practicing and applying things and really actually reconstructing a simulation that captures, in my opinion, much more of the contextual components of it that you just cannot capture in a simulation. Yeah, um, yeah thanks for pointing that out. And I, I have an opinion of why that might be. And and I first also agree, role plays are really powerful. I, I still play, uh, partake in them myself. Uh, but there, I think the reason why simulations um, are not that well known is because only big budgets, big corporations could afford them. True. And, and because of that, they were so expensive to build, took forever to build, or you have to go to a big consulting firm and they would, you know, have to tweak it for you and deliver it for you and facilitate it for you. And, and it just made it so only a small group of large organizations could afford it. And that yeah, it was, it was not scalable. It really wasn't. It was something to your yeah. point um, for folks who listen or watch, and you may be coming from a smaller organization, you may not be familiar with it because unless you were at one of those big F 
F100 companies with, they were really invested in this and had very targeted things mm -hmm. that we went, this is what we need to simulate. We're willing to spend the big dollars on it. Most folks went, I, that's not even something we had conversations about because it was mm -hmm. so far out of the realm of possibilities. Yeah. Budgets were just uh, too big for those things. And that that's what led to our pretty significant pivot three years ago. Um, okay. Actually pre COVID we put together a plan and we said, you know, what do we really love? We love the experiences that we're creating. The people love the experiences. They, we always hear that it's life-changing and that it was probably the most impactful learning experience they've ever had. And we're like, everybody needs access to this. We need to figure out how to democratize this. So a high school kid someday could learn how to be a leader by practicing leadership. They can learn how to run projects by running multiple projects in a simulation. They can take products to market. They can take AI-enabled products to the market, you know, those types of things, and practice that. That's the future we see. And so that means that we had to completely rethink the sim experience as well as bring uh, authoring tools to market, uh, much like e-learning. Okay. Uh, we brought the first uh, tools to market. Okay. Okay. Well, and... What I love about this, and I hope this is where folks, as you're listening to this, one of the reasons I was so excited about this conversation is the fact that this has been historically largely exclusive for mm -hmm. a lot of folks. So not only was it exclusive to companies and employees, but even to a lot of L&D professionals mm -hmm. where they didn't even really have the opportunity to engage in these types of projects because it wasn't something the companies they worked with really ever had either the appetite mm -hmm. or the budget to do. And I see this now coming to a stage where we now, and that's where sometimes I pick on the emphasis we put in our industry around knowledge acquisition. But at the same time, I recognize that for many folks going beyond that just wasn't feasible mm -hmm. with the tools, the skill sets and the organizational awareness um, that we have. So I, that's why I'm looking forward to digging into it. So let's talk about how that transition is happening and mm. how, in my opinion, it's going to accelerate really, really, really quickly mm. here, especially with the advancement of AI. Because to say this used to be exclusive to only the elite organizations that had the budgets to do it to, hey, now and in the years to come, this is going to be accessible to just about anybody. That's a big shift. So what did that look like going through it? Yeah. Well, we, we looked at e-learning to start with and we said, what okay what was the path that it was on that it just all of a sudden accelerated? And it really brought us back to around about 2003 or so, where we noticed that it went from developers needing to write HTML, doing JavaScript and you know building it all, to now all of a sudden the market uh, had a bunch of tools, Articulate, for example. And now what that meant is that any organization and then ultimately any instructional designer could build e-learning. And that's yeah. when it just grew. And then now you have these huge e-learning catalogs all over the world. That's what we needed to solve. The simulation okay. space never had authoring tools. Not They have single purpose authoring tools that maybe can do one thing really well, but it never had the tool that allowed you to build uh, a simulation for any type of skill practice. And so okay. that's what really needed to be Yeah, solved. they were very... they historically have been very niche and very targeted. Yeah. It was like, well, if you're trying to do this specific thing, then this tool can do that. But if you want to go out color outside those lines, you basically had to build a whole ecosystem of these tools, which again, then became cost prohibitive 
And even just from a strategic standpoint, as you're building out your ecosystem, you have to ask how many of these are we really doing to justify having that, which is where you saw consultancies, professional services firms, they would mm -hmm. have that kind of stuff, but the general L and D organization. They, they not. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that, that was the first part of our journey is to bring the technology to market. So we released, uh, it's called SimGate. We released it in January. It has all the tools that you need for designing, developing, deploying, and maintaining simulations. And our, our point is that now you can have a simulation be built as fast as e-learning and deploy it as easily as e-learning. But here's the best part. E-learning is only something that you do by yourself. With these simulations, you can deliver it as a team, team-based experience online, okay. or you can deliver it in person. So not only did we figure out the tools, but we, we rethought the modality of deployment as well. Okay. How did, because you said you spun this up three years ago, <laughs> yeah. which I'm doing the math. <laughs> We're right about the time of COVID, yeah. you know, really kind of accelerating. I'm curious how you saw the, because to me, this solved a really critical problem in a really important time when there was just an absolute disruption to skills, the way work was happening and all of this. But I'm curious, how did that, play out because I, I think it was last week I had a guest on and something that you would assume, oh, COVID would, yeah, it was, it was last week. We were talking about like virtual delivery. Mm -hmm. You would assume that it would have new tools would have just exploded. And in many ways they didn't because some people were just so desperate to do what they always knew Yeah, that trying to break into new areas was like, I don't have capacity to think about this. So how was, cause this is in many ways disruptive to yeah. kind of the traditional L and D shop. That's like, this is what we've always been doing. You're asking us to think differently, design differently, plan differently. How did that go? <laughs> yeah, it it was the hardest, I think, point in my career ever uh, because it was it was terrifying. Uh, we knew what we were taking on has never been done before, so that was scary. We were doing it during a time that the world was just in chaos and melting down. Um, and so uh, we just got really focused as a team. And, and that uh, in some ways, COVID was almost like a, a blessing in that uh, we, we literally lost about 50, 60% of our revenue in three weeks because we were doing in-person deployments all over the world. So now all that was gone. Yeah, it was just terrifying. Uh, so we, we kind of regrouped and we said, you know, if we wanna really be the change we wish to see in the world and we really wanna democratize learning, this is our chance. We got the space. Let's just figure out how to now build this tech that we've talked about and try to get to market as soon as we can. Um, and it just so happens when we released it, we released it at probably the best time we could ever imagine because that's right when AI started taking off. And, uh, you know, and then that just made that knowledge level learning. Um, people think about that differently. And so experiential learning is now the hot topic and everyone's talking about it and it's probably going to become the fastest growing area is experiential learning simulations in the next couple of years so so yeah so it was uh, it was terrifying uh, to say the okay. least but uh we we came out of it and it's uh it's now working beautifully yeah so i want to go i've spent some time unpacking this and in some areas but i also want to unpack experiential learning and i'm really curious how you're defining that mm -hmm. Because this is, again, one of those things that can be a very ambiguous term 
that gets thrown around, you know, and you go, well, what do you mean when you actually say experiential learning? And some people automatically jump to VR mm -hmm. and assume that that's exactly what we're talking about, which is one of those like, well, it could be, but not. So mm -hmm. I'm curious when you say experiential learning, what, yeah, what does that mean? mean? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Because I, I do sometimes use experiential learning simulations somewhat inter interchangeably. I would say experiential learning is the larger bucket. That's anything that puts people, it could be, you know, the a lot of times when people think about experiential learning, they'll think about ropes course or, you know, putting people into situations where they have apprenticeship and, and those types of things. When I'm using it, I'm really honing in more on simulation. So technology enabled through the browser where it's putting you into a situation where you have to make decisions, see the impacts of those decisions. It is not as far as kind of that um, VR is going. So it's not about putting you in the virtual world. Um, it is not trying to create that virtual uh, landscape in which you're making decisions. It is really trying to present kind of this dynamic scenario that's adapting to your decisions. And that's, uh, that's the difference between kind of the, the VR and the STEM space. And then the experiential learning is kind of an umbrella okay. around all those. Well, and we can talk about the full spectrum of that, but I appreciate the clarity on that because I've been in conversations before where people shut down when they hear experiential learning because they attribute it to VR mm -hmm. and they go, well, we don't, we don't do that. And it's like, hang on, like, why are you writing off an entire category of ways of learning simply because you don't think you have the infrastructure for mm -hmm. VR to do that kind of stuff? So is primarily what you're doing is a lot of where you're going with this browser-based to again, make it accessible to a much it, larger audience? That's the approach we took. We we want every individual, every corporation to have access to this. We wanna make it so it is as scalable, affordable as any other learning modality. I think VR and those will get there um, in the next few years. And that's probably also why I use experiential learning because simulations is part of your learning ecosystem of experiential yep. learning. VR is another type of experiential learning. AR is another, you know, type of experiential learning. The, you know, the Apple, you know, what they just released, that is another form of kind of experiential learning. So that's the umbrella. Simulations is really a part of that ecosystem. Okay. And I think we could, we'll have a chance to talk a little bit f further about where that goes. Cause I think the whole point of like where we are on the adoption curve, I just really think it's important for people to think about this because and boss, your question kind of comes into play and we'll, I'll flesh this out a little bit more is again, I think sometimes the category of experiential learning gets limited in the conversation because of people's biases and perceptions of what they think that looks like. Well, we don't have a ropes course. Well, we don't have VR infrastructure. Well, we, and what you're saying is actually there are ways to thoughtfully and effectively design simulations that can be both cooperative and collaborative because you mentioned the fact you can design these to not just be a solo exercise mm -hmm. but also accessible from a technology standpoint is that is that, that a fair summary that, that actually it's a perfect summary because you're right the reason we looked at the web browser is because we wanted it so you can deploy it all over the world deploy it in multiple languages and uh, make it accessible to any individual through the web browser without any other hardware technology so that was really goal number one Goal number two then was to create a different type of learning experience where it is uh, more simulation based and where you're uh, interacting, engaging with it. And then step three was how to then take it to the human element, right? You know, think about cohort learning and people on a journey. 
how do we go ahead and bring simulations into that team-based experience? So whether we're on a you know virtual meeting like this, you and I could actually be collaborating in a simulation and you know d discussing each other's perspectives. Like why would you do that? And this is why I would do that. That learning is invaluable. Just hearing from each other, and then we make a decision. And in our particular technology, you can vote on the decision that represents us as a team and capture our individual decisions. So it. Uh, it just changes the entire online experience and as well as in-person experience. Okay. Well, and maybe what we can do to just help folks is kind of unpack what one of these things could look like, because I just even, what comes to mind for me, and I've been all over in terms of, you know, some of these things, one of the things that, you know, I go back to that really did make a big difference in my own professional development was an experience that we had designed that really was around this collaborative decision-making, mm -hmm. you know, and we had goals and we had things that we needed to do, but really it was about how are we getting the right information? How are we discussing what we're trying to do? How are we coming to decisions? How are we making those? And there was a very rigid assessment structure mm -hmm. underneath this, which we'll talk about the measurement piece that actually allowed us to see how well are we actually developing these human skills mm -hmm. that often get kind of left as like, well, we don't really know whether people know how to do this stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, actually, actually there are ways to do this mm -hmm. that you can actually pull this off. So let run a use case. Like where have you had an organization come and go, you know what, we're trying to drive this. And we think that a simulation, or you've said, I think we could really do this well with a simulation. And how did that unfold? Mm -hmm. Um, right now, probably the most popular area the sims are being used is in leadership development, whether it's new leaders okay. or senior leaders. And the reason is because you can put people into a lot of different leadership situations, whether they're trying to resolve a conflict, they're trying to grow a team, they're trying to improve the performance of that team, improve the decision-making, problem-solving. So to make something really tangible, let's just take a, a very simple topic like project management. So okay. now imagine you are in a simulation and you are going to be the project lead. And that means you're running a simulated project and you're doing everything from getting the project up and running. And then you start to run the project and all of a sudden a client is wants a last minute change request. So do you. That um, never happens. I have no idea. Happens, right. It's, yeah. it's not a real life scenario. It's not right? even close, Come on. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. So now it's like, okay, do I do that? And then you have your teammates who are saying, I am so overwhelmed. I cannot imagine doing any more work right now. And then you have a boss who's saying, hey, this client's got a lot more work for us. Who, who do you please now? Do you please your boss? Do you take care of the client? Do you not take care of your team? That's what you experience in a simulation is you, you're going to have to make a trade-off decision. And what you'll see is your, your teammates growing further away from you. You know, that's kind of a cool way we can learn how to do reporting. Or you see people growing closer because you're investing in them. And uh, so that, that would be a pretty tangible type of experience. Okay. Well, and I, as I'm thinking about this, and I think this is where I want to get is some of the design of this. Um, but what you're talking about there, and I see this as a universal thing. And I talk a lot about some of the durable skills that I think underpin mm -hmm pretty much every role, regardless, whether it's mm -hmm. leadership, whether you're a project manager, whether you work in marketing, learning, like whatever it is, some of these things that what you're talking about is helping people develop the critical thinking skills mm -hmm. of assessing risk, identifying the downstream implications of decisions that they're making and getting better at predicting and making decisions around how to make those decisions well, because it is 
I mean, that's really what life is all about is about making these decisions and understanding the trade-offs and the fallouts of some of these and making the right set of choices and learning from them and going, wow, in the example you gave, like I decided to please my boss at the expense of my team and recognizing, well, you know what, you might've got another gig, but now you got nobody to help you with it because you've completely isolated yourself. And was there a better way to go through that? My question to you is this, how do you help people get through the journey of thinking differently about learning experience as it relates to this? Because yeah. a tool can help you design that kind of stuff. But in many ways, even in my experience as a learning leader, growing and developing my teams, knowing how to actually unpack a problem into those behavioral decision components, that's Honestly, that's a skill that in many regards I think is lacking mm -hmm. in our industry. We have a really pretty good history of being able to look at information and figure out what information is most relevant, how to make it engaging, things like that. But when you actually dig into, well, this is the problem they're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. How do you get people to get the right behaviors and make the right decisions and behave in the right way to balance that? That's yeah. a lot more complex. It, it is. Yeah, I think um, I started to tell you a little bit as we made the pivot. The first thing we for focused on was SimGate, the technology, getting that out the door so yeah. anyone could build it. The second thing we focused on was the AI to use the AI to generate the content for the simulation, any of the activities okay. within the simulation. So that was part two. But part three is what you just hit was experiential design. And we realized that um, most of the instructional design community, especially for the last 20 years, has been taught a, a way of thinking about scaffolding content, chunking content, tying it to learning objectives that very much lends itself to knowledge level learning, to e-learning. Yeah. So, I mean, a simulation is a different, it's a different beast. It's a different animal. It's a different It animal. really is a different animal. Yeah. And really in many is. regards, sometimes I've even had to hire outside the industry to bring that skill set in because you're almost pulling from game design or you know some of these other things where people really were thinking about the human experience very differently than yeah. our industry has historically been groomed to kind of think about things it's i think this is the opportunity that lnd professionals have now though because i've talked to a lot of CLO, clos over the last couple of months especially because i talk a lot about the ai and the impact ai is having and one of the things they ask a lot about is what do we do with our instructional designers and I said, this is the best time in the world. This is it. This is it. Exactly. And let AI do what it does well, but now upskill them, reskill them to be experiential designers. So then they can go and work on, you know, these higher cognitive skills. And then at the same time, I really love that the World Economic Forum published their top 10 skills over the next 10 years. And they're all in that higher cognitive development space. And uh, which is specifically what simulations do well. So to me, this is like the best opportunity in the world for L&D and in um, yeah. creating that space so everyone could be upskilled, reskilled, let AI do that knowledge level stuff, let it do the e-learning and the flow of learning, just-in-time learning, performance management, micro-learning. AI is great at all that. But that yeah. experiential is, uh, is the new thing. And so what we're trying to actually do is help people get that experiential certification because it is such a different way of thinking. It is such a different... Well, and I think... To anybody listening, I will very much second what you just said in terms of, to me, this is where the instructional design skill set needs to transform to mm -hmm. because 
I made a post about it earlier this morning. I mean, there are apps now that with a few basic prompts can generate video content mm -hmm. at the, at the click of a button. And it's yeah. decent content. If you give it the right information and you do a pretty light overview of what it is. And so pure content generation, it's, we're already at a stage where the machines can largely do it better and faster mm -hmm. than we can. And that's not a, what you're doing doesn't matter anymore. It's just more the fact that, well, so what do we do as an alternative? Because there still will be a role with the content. Cause honestly, if you just tell one of these tools to make content, mm -hmm. it's not very good. I mean, yeah. you need somebody who can thoughtfully work with it and actually mold it into something meaningful. Yeah. But the amount of time you're going to be spending on that, I think is going to dwindle and, you, you know, shift. And so I think what you're getting at, this has largely been the journey that I've pushed my designers on for really even long before COVID was, Hey, this is really where we need to go. Because if you look at the arc of AI, this has been coming for, this has been coming for a long time. It's finally yeah. hit mainstream, but this shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone right now. It, it really shouldn't. Yeah. I think, uh, you mentioned to you before we, uh, we thought about AI and we built uh, what we call is three layers of AI. And that first layer is, I think, what you were just talking about, we call it level one AI, where with uh, some pretty simple prompting, you can build out an a sim. Like we can actually build a sim in two minutes with the okay. rapid AI. And I would say the content is about 50% good content. It still would need some human touch. So then that led us to what we called as guided AI, where then it actually, the instructional design it, uh, designer, uh, with the co-pilot then builds out really good content and gets up to about 60 to 70% really good content for the simulation. And okay. then the third level is the trainable AI where you can actually ingest your organization's content. And that way, when it generates the simulation it reflects your culture, your leadership model, your principles, your values, and that's getting the content really close. So now when we were, doing our own little experiment internally we had a simulation bake-off where we could see who could build a sim fastest and we gave them an hour and they built out a sim and one i love it like the learning hackathon the it, sim it was it was a hackathon yeah and we we're asking our team like how long would it have taken you you know before these tools and then average response was a couple of weeks to build out what they were able to do in one hour and then right. we talked about the level of content and yeah so it's it's I mean, we're only, you know, you know, six months into the year and we're already producing that. There's 1,700 AI tools in that first quarter that we were tracking. And so that's yep. going to exponentially, that's right. yeah, it's going to exponentially explode this next couple months or next quarter. Yeah. And so, right. uh, so that knowledge level learning is going to be uh, pretty much taken care of. So it, it really is how do you shift your lens towards that experiential. Okay. So Sherry, I'm bringing your question up and it's a twofold one that I want to engage with. Uh, so we'll talk about the delivery mechanism second, but the first one goes back to the, just emphasizing what you said in terms of time and quality. You know, I don't know a single learning professional in the field that has said, nah, I don't really have a desire. I don't think there's a need for more experiential learning and behavior-based like demonstration of skills and application. I really don't know anybody who's ever said it. It yeah. always came down to, we don't have time to do this kind of stuff. Because to your example, when you ask people, how long would it have normally taken to you know, build something like this? Well, weeks. And that's if you were super experienced and nothing went wrong and you had all the details type mm -hmm. of thing. You look at a lot of these things, it was like 
from just a reasonable standpoint, we don't have time to do it. We just have to be so selective. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to the scarcity mindset that I see with some of the fear mongering around AI is, oh, it's going to come take our stuff away. And I just look at the surplus of things that many people have said, I really wish we could do more of this, mm -hmm. but we can't. We're constrained yeah. because of money, time, you know, things like this. It's not a zero sum game. And so when I look at some of these things where we go, I, I know tons of organizations who would love to have done more of this. It just wasn't within reach. And what you're talking about now is this is becoming attainable mm -hmm. to the masses. Yeah, it really is. And we, I think the thing that I often try to bring people back to when I'm talking about a simulation are the four fears. And the first fear uh, has always been the cost of a simulation. They just only big yep. budgets. Uh, the second was the time that it took to build them. When we used to build these in a custom before pre-tool, um, it would take us five to eight months. Now we can build it in five, eight weeks. So, I mean, it's yep. just that big of a, a, a difference. Uh, the next one was amount, the amount of resources that it took. It took a lot of subject matter expert time and all of those Tons. things. And that's that's a really costly expense for organizations. But now with the AI generating, you know, 50 to 80% of the content that you can then put in front of a subject matter expert and have a good... So they can react to it they instead of trying to mine this stuff out of their heads. Exactly. It can be just excruciating. We, we call the AI the go get me the rock you know, thing from the stakeholder, like build me a conflict resolution course because I'm seeing all the conflict in the workplace of teams and hybrid teams. And it's like, well, what do they really mean? Well, generate a quick course and put it in front of them and then own it. And so that's all now doable. And the, the fourth fear is around maintenance. Um, you know, when you produce yeah, sustainability, you got to sustain it. You, wanna... you invested a ton of time, a yeah. ton of resources, a ton of subject matter expertise. And you're like, how long is the shelf life of this shelf thing? Life. That's it. Yeah. And so that's that's what we had to address. And that's the beauty of, you know, the tools and AI is really making uh, this much more uh, approachable for any organization now. Okay. Well, and I think those... Again, going back to everything we said, if you're approaching this with a scarcity mindset, it can feel threatening. It can. Yeah. But if you're approaching this with an abundance mindset and going, with what we have, we can now create more of things that we weren't able to do before. Because all those factors, I mean, I can't tell you the number of executive board meetings I've been in where it's been like, well, if we're going to do this, we got to figure out you know, how to get the cost down. Mm -hmm. How can we get it delivered in time? Is it going to be something that we actually can even do? Because do we have the knowledge and internal resources to pull it off? Or are they too busy with other things? You know, we can't command all these people from this field to actually do this stuff. And then are we going to end up doing this and three months later go, well, now we have this nice thing, yeah. um, but yeah. it's completely irrelevant because yeah. our business has changed. changed. And you go, yeah. well, that was a, you know, several million dollar flash in the pan. Yeah. And so it was very, you almost had to get so specific that by the time you did, it was like, well, versus now you can approach this so much quicker. Yeah. Um, I, I have a follow-up to that, but before I do, I do want to make sure I get to Sherry's other question. The assumption was that it requires an LMS for delivery, but I would, I'm, well, you tell me, is that necessarily the case? Um, you, yeah, it's not necessary. So you can do it through your LMS if you want your LMS to be. If that's your deployment if method your deployment that you have in your system. You a lot okay. of organizations that are doing more virtual or in-person, they go directly into the experience. So you don't have to okay. have an LMS, uh, but if that's what you want and you want all the final reporting in LMS, that's all part of the ecosystem. Okay. 
Perfect. And that, and that was my assumption, but I figured rather than speak on your behalf, um, you know, based on what you've said, that, that makes sense that you would then be able to deploy this because you said browser-based. So it, it could be deployed, could be deployed through your LMS anymore. if that's your tool yeah. for pushing things out. We, but if it's not, it's not a limitation. We even had a few organizations that had an e-learning course and then they wanted people to practice uh, midstream. Mm. And so in, you're in the actual e-learning course created, I think maybe from articulators. And you would then all of a sudden be in the sim practicing the skills and then you're back into the learning. So we've even done those types of things. So, oh, so almost embedded it within the e object itself and exactly. said, hey, you're doing, which again, this goes back to the abundance mindset of there are things that we can start dreaming up about mm. how we can do skill development and reinforcement and measurement that honestly were impossibilities before. That's the part that gets me really excited about this stuff. Yeah, me too. We, um, we call it kind of behavioral analytics and it kind of, our whole research around mental models led us into this idea of behavioral analytics and trying to help the L&D community become more analytic, uh, analytic focused, you know, bringing better data and having more da uh, data driven types of discussions. Well, to do that, you need a richer data set and you need to understand how are people approaching decisions? How are they approaching certain situations? Are they aligned with the organizational strategy or where they misaligned? How is people in how are people in Europe approaching a situation different than here in the Americas, and why is that? What what skills do we need to focus on? That's all becoming more and more possible because of simulations, because of the data that it captures. No other yeah. learning experience captures anything even remotely close to that. No, and I think that's where I've been doing simulations for such a long time. It always kind of floored, not floored me, but it was always just kind of a confusing thing when I heard, well, it's really hard to measure whether you're actually changing behavior. And I just always remember mm -hmm. being like, no, no, actually, no. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you have to be thoughtful about it, but what do you mean? No, it's not. It's actually really easy if you identify the behaviors because through simulation and experience, you can quickly assess how people are doing it. Mm -hmm. But again, I recognize that for many that has been so inaccessible it has felt like more of a pipe dream of well maybe we did a role play and we had some basic rubrics and metrics but that again was just very clunky not scalable you know where the data went we weren't really re able to do much with it versus with what you're talking about all of that data because it's a digital sim is now captured measured you throw ai on top of it that can begin to start to see patterns and things yes. like that you can quickly start to see hey, here's this person's capability and opportunity areas within this specific skill set. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. We're starting to work on some hypothesis as well as some pilots around that because, because of this data set, um, AI is obviously, if you train up a, a language model around how to mine that data, it can start to look at the patterns like you're saying. And yeah. so it, it moves us into a whole different world of adaptive learning. You know, today the adaptive yes. learning, I would say, is at best a bunch of rules. It's this logic, you know, based on how they did on assessments and based on a couple decisions and so forth. It's a little bit, I would say, closer to the hard coding. But this moves us into true adaptive learning. True adaptive. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's pretty exciting. Yep. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, that's where, again, that's one of those words. We're not talking about that here. But um when I hear the word adaptive learning, that's another one that I always go, what do you mean when you say that? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes when people say it, it's very 
Boolean variable, you know, X plus Y equals this and it's branching and you go that, that is adaptive in a sense. And it's better than just everyone goes through the same thing, but it's still not the level we're talking about here where AI is truly unlocking, Mm -hmm. looking at so many different variables and going, this is dynamically what the experience is. We're truly no two experiences are ever the same. Exactly. That's, that's going to be the fun stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So let me ask you this though, because we just talked about speed and how AI is going to make this stuff more accessible, faster. Things that used to take weeks can now take an hour, which by the way, anybody listening, be very careful how you set expectations with stakeholders. I have seen these things go south where it's like, we can make all this stuff in a day there still is all the complexity that goes behind it. And I've mm-hmm. seen people put themselves in very uncomfortable situations, writing checks they can't cash. But I am curious, and I asked this question on a panel a while back, how fast is too fast? Because in some ways, I have seen the speed at which AI is now unlocking and enabling things, pushing people to a point of speed to execution that they actually end up skipping the critical thinking component Mm -hmm. on, hang on a second, we need to be thoughtful about how we think about this and what problem we're really trying to solve and where this goes, simply because this disposable mentality of, well, we can just create stuff and we'll put it out there and nothing, something is better than nothing. And actually, when you think about the human experience and what you're asking of people and things like that, Actually, that's not necessarily the case. So how do you help people walk that line? Mm -hmm. Because that to me is one of the risks that I see is, yeah, we can create things and we can generate stuff and we can push out so much, so much faster. But if we're not careful, we may end up causing some real problems. Yeah. And thank you for bringing that up because you do want to be sure to set expectations thoughtfully with stakeholders. And um, I think the way I think about AI right now it's really good at generating the creative content that that simulations need. You know, this, the storyline, the scenarios, the options, the trade-offs. It is brilliant at creating that type of content. It was almost like perfectly designed for that, right? Uh, but what it what it doesn't do well today, um, and it will get there, is uh, the scoring, the understanding the trade-offs of decisions. It is that is the when we were talking about the experiential design. That's the part that people have to be upskilled and reskilled to understand how to think. We usually say, start with the end in mind. What are the two or three performance indicators that you want to track in the simulation? What are the okay. skills and how are those metrics tied to those skills? Then build out the scoring, then have the AI generate the content. So that, uh, so that, that part is not easy yet. That part still takes time and takes training on how to figure out uh, that. We do anticipate AI will contribute to that. But um, it still requires um, human intervention. So that, that part does require some, some time. Okay. Well, and I think that's a good call out because, again, sometimes when I get into this where you see the fear mongering and people mm-hmm. you know, who don't understand the complexity of some of this starting to go, well, what does this mean for me? Does this mean that there's really no place? And I think that's a good call out. Um, is you know the ability to still have that critical thinking and mm-hmm. oversight on how this is happening. I mean... We joked about this backstage, but I've gotten into a habit of calling people out when I can tell their stuff is AI generated, yeah, generated where it's just yeah. like, oh, you know, really? Thanks for that thoughtful, you know, response mm-hmm. to what you think about this, that 
you know, has some casual emojis and doesn't sound at all like you do. And I think that's where there's the risk. I think the other thing, and correct me if you got a different opinion, that as you talked about that and you said this, it does really well when you've identified those key performance indicators or behaviors you're trying to change up front. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the part that I continue pushing and growing and developing my teams and the people I interact with to say that front end business consulting mm -hmm. side, yeah, that is where you need to lean in and mm -hmm. dig into these things and understand. Yes. Can you now accelerate the speed to market with a solution? Once you've gone, we've locked in, like we have zoned in on what we're trying to do. It's not going to be nine months before we can get you something, Yeah, but taking the time to do some of that, uh, to me is still critical. And if anything, the advancement in speed of AI is now making it able to push back when senior leaders would go, well, we don't have that kind of time. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, actually we do because we can get to a solution much faster. So let's make sure we're actually working on the right solution. Yeah. I, I, I love your coaching. I would agree with it hundred percent that the real art is that understanding the front business need, the impacts, um, what, you know, what, how do you want people to think different? Often we call it a, a from to mental model shift. You know, how are people yep. thinking about it today? How do we want them to think about it tomorrow? And tying a simulation to that from to mental model shift is absolutely critical for its success. And uh, I think the AI uh, way to think about that and our tools like SimGate, it now is making it so it's scalable and affordable. So it's, it's like the tool set, but you still need the human thinking of what's the problem you're trying to solve, regardless of a tool set, whether it's, a e-learning tool or a simulation tool, you still need to know um, that good analysis up front. Yeah. Well, and I, and I go back to some of the things, you know, we often, I often see things about us not wanting to be order takers and be having a seat at the table. And, th and to me, I go, there's always been a seat there. Mm -hmm. If you, if you know how to engage, if you understand what's really going on, but to your point on this, I think this is a really important time because in my opinion, the risk to take bad orders mm -hmm. <laughs> and create lots of bad product is heightening right yeah, now. Because if you're an order-taking organization that just shows up and says, what is it you want? Oh, okay, this is the problem you're trying to solve. Let us go make a simulation for that. You can still create a lot of chaos. And all these things that we're talking about as real benefits will be missed because it'll be like, yeah, you made a simulation. Yeah. but it was on something completely irrelevant to the organization. And you're still wasting people's time asking them to go through a simulation that has absolutely no value to what they're doing. You're not going to get better feedback. The data you have on behavior is completely irrelevant. I mean, all those benefits we talked about downstream are completely missed if you're not taking the time to dig into this and challenge mm -hmm. the assumption that whoever comes to you with it has already thought all this stuff through because yeah. they haven't. Yeah, with with all the AI and the tools, you can just create chaos faster. So that's that's the <laughs> so there's a, there's benefit to that. But I think the idea is if you could use the AI to now be the tool that helps you confirm is this going to be solving the problem. So if you think about that subject matter expert time in many organizations, that's the most costly expense, and it's they're okay. also usually the high most in high demand. So if you can get something into their fingertips faster. And then have them confirm, you know, is this what's representing the problem? Is this, if people learn this way of thinking, is this going to hit the mark? 
and get them to do that faster and easier, that's that's a huge cost savings right there alone. Okay. Well, and what you just described there, I think is a point worth really calling out on this, on the ability to rapid prototype is coming a lot quicker, which mm -hmm. going back to, I've been part of the business leader conversations many times. And a lot of the flack that learning gets or HR gets sometimes is you take too long yeah. to come to a proposed solution. Like you're mm -hmm. talking in circles and I'm not really sure even where we're going Right. versus now we can say, Hey, we've gotten enough to at least create a prototype to say, hey, is this on the right track? Are we getting us where we need to go so that you can create that sense of urgency of, we're not saying we're rolling this thing out in a week, but we are saying we can get back to you in a week with a prototype of, are we on the right track? Yeah. Is this the right direction? Is this addressing the real problems that you're seeing versus before there was a, re and this is a mindset shift for our industry mm -hmm. because there has been a, sh a resistance to go, we got to get it all right. Yeah. Because by the time we go down here, this can just cause all sorts of cases. So we need to make sure we do it. And that has been a frustration mm -hmm. for our stakeholders. And I think now we can start to ease that up a little bit has been my experience. Yeah, I, I absolutely. Maybe to add to that is because of the authoring tools now, you don't have to get it right. Meaning that get it out there, pilot it, get that feedback. Now you can modify it. Before, when you used to build a sim, you drop all this money. And, you, you <laughs> and somebody comes in and goes, you like, got it wrong. You're like, oh, no. Yeah. And then your job's <laughs> on the line. And so now it's like the faster you can get pilots out there and get that feedback from the audience, you really are becoming more human-centered design because you're, you're really getting the feedback from the community. And is it working? Is the experience working? Are they getting the ahas that you want them to have in the simulation? And uh, so I think that's that's the beauty of speed of the AI, uh, you know, with the tools. But to your point, you just you, you can't you can't overlook uh, the importance of understanding the the business need. No, and and even to that point, but this is a shift, and I think this is a shift I will continue encouraging our industry to take into consideration is. It can be very uncomfortable making this shift into, hey, we're we're iterating, we're moving quick, we're experimenting. We may not have all the answers. Mm -hmm. And I know I've coached a lot of folks in our in our industry around this where it can feel really uncomfortable. Well, well but we don't know this. Mm -hmm. We don't have the answer to this yet. That's okay that is because right. we're taking a more iterative approach. We're gonna do what we can mm -hmm. because it doesn't take as long. It's lower risk. We can test it out. And we can make tweaks very quickly and mm -hmm. learn from it and actually create a better product instead of having to go, we got to have the whole blueprint and architecture mm -hmm. right. Because if we don't, the building's going to collapse and everyone's going to die. And yeah. it's like, well, that's not the world we're working in, which can be a big shift depending, especially. And I think that's just as much of a shift for organizations. So for those who are listening, who are working with those stakeholders, going back to the point earlier of expectation setting, that can be a shift for stakeholders who are used to, well, we got to get this right in every detail. And what about this? And we didn't account for that. And starting to set those expectations of, hey, here's where we are. Let's mm -hmm. step it forward. Let's learn. We'll adapt. And that's a different way of working. It really is. And that's kind of what we usually encourage people to do with this new technology is build just really small micro sims, nano sims to get them out there and test it in the market, you know, into your population. And and then, you know, you can keep adding to those and, and restructure them and reuse them and 
reuse them for different purposes now because it's all doable. And uh, yeah, and don't, don't try to build the big behemoth simulation anymore. It's just, it's not necessary. You know? I love that. And again, I know there was a trend um, and there still is in many regards around micro learning and, mm -hmm. you know, how do we make content more digestible, more small, more bite-sized. Mm -hmm. So it's more durable and more, you know, right. reusable. And I think the fact that we can now do that. That was impossible for Sims for a long it was. time. It's like, yeah, we can't, we can't yeah. do it. We right. can't create a nano sim. Yeah. It just isn't feasible mm -hmm. versus now. And I think this should be an encouragement to everybody that actually we can now. Mm -hmm. So micro sim, nano sim thinking of experience is actually a possibility and not just for the elite select few, but really to the masses. It's an exciting future. It really is. And yeah, it's it's not only a possibility, it's our recommendation. Start there. That's It's the easiest way to start introducing simulation-based learning in your organization. Yeah. Okay. So Awesome. Yeah. So have there been, with a the, with the couple minutes left, I'm curious, for folks who may have listened to this, been inspired, excited, they're like, I love you know where this is going. I feel like <laughs> this also is like turning <laughs> Titanic yeah. mm -hmm. in terms of maybe where they are. Where have you seen organizations get started yeah. on this and be really effective? Because to me, this isn't a one day you show up and go, everything we did out with the old, in with the new, those kinds of changes almost never stick. Yeah. So how have you seen organizations step into the pool effectively? Yeah, it's um, one of the things I've been advising a lot of organizations is try to get someone in the L&D team to become an AI advocate understanding all okay. the AI tools, build an AI manifest uh, for how to use AI tools responsibly within the organizations. And part of that is start to think through the pivot to experiential learning because AI is rapidly going to be replacing all that knowledge level, information level uh, types of stuff. Brandon Hall just put out a report around that. Burson was talking about it a few weeks ago about let the AI do the information. You as an L&D community need to start thinking about that higher cognitive skill development and laying out the roadmap for how you're going to develop those higher cognitive skills as AI is, um, you know, amplifying all these other powers that people have in the workplace. Okay. And so that's, and to test out that experiential roadmap, again, I would start with kind of a nano sim, micro sim, and trialing the tools. That's what we do is we set up trials so you can actually do it yourself <laughs> and experience okay. it. And then, okay. uh, and then try it and pilot in your organization. Yeah. Well, so there you go. All the things we talked about, <laughs> it's about, uh, in some ways, just getting started with it and yeah. saying, where is an opportunity to just test the waters with it? It's yeah. not it's... an overnight shift, but where can you? Because everybody, I would say everybody I know and everybody listening, you know that thing where you go, hey, this might, it's coming to mind for you right now where you mm -hmm. go, this actually might be an opportunity where we could make that kind of change. Yeah. And that's where totally. to start. And, it, and the sim is good for any type of skill. So it could be your leadership skills, your business skills, your financial skills. Any of those things are great for a sim experience. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, Mike, thank you so much. I told you we would burn through yeah, time before. Did. I, I, I didn't even get through half of the questions that I wanted to get through, but it's fine. So we'll yeah. be, we will have to have you back. So thank you so much for this. Thanks, everybody, for your active participation in the chat. Hopefully you got something out of this and it's changing the way you're thinking about it, and also making you feel a little more optimistic about the AI future yeah. that's ahead. I think there's a lot of great stuff that we can do. So thank you, Mike, for being here. Absolutely. I loved it. Thank you so much for the conversation. All right. Have a great week, everyone, and we will see you next week.